From Politico, I'm Ryan Heath, and this is Global Insider. By now, you know about the escalating tension between China and Taiwan. We start in China, where President Xi Jinping has said reunification with Taiwan must be fulfilled. Tsai Ing-wen says Taipei will not bow to pressure from Beijing to reunify with China. A record number of Chinese fighter jets and bombers have been performing military drills close to Taiwan in recent days. President Xi Jinping insists the two countries must be reunified against Taiwan's will, putting Taiwan on a collision course with the superpower next door and putting its democracy on the line. Meanwhile, today's guest is working to strengthen that democracy using tools that are driving other countries apart, digital technologies. This week, Global Insider takes you to Taipei and inside the mind of one of the most interesting and innovative leaders anywhere in the world, Audrey Tang, the digital minister of Taiwan. From child prodigy to Silicon Valley teenage programmer to transitioning genders as an adult, Audrey's story is nothing like most of the cabinet ministers you've come across before. And we'll discover what it's actually like to live and govern in the shadow of the Chinese Communist Party every single day. Did I mention Audrey's a Trekkie too? Long live and prosper, my friends. My first question is, I'd love you to give everyone listening a sense of what it's like to work in the leadership of a nation that is under this constant threat from a huge neighbor. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, tell us, is it something you talk about with your colleagues every day? Is it something that just lurks in the background while you get on with the day-to-day job? What is the presence of China in how you govern? Well, it's within this larger mindset of being resilient uh, against all sort of expected and unexpected natural or human-made disasters, right? So, for example, in Taiwan, we have to plan our buildings uh, to be quite proof to earthquakes because we've got pretty large earthquakes and also typhoons uh, that uh, just one narrowly missed Taiwan but would have caused a lot of damage had it landed. Uh, and it's just part of our public infrastructure. Uh, and the same goes for, for example, our cybersecurity infrastructure, which has to uh, withstand not just the, you know, uh, run-of-the-mill cybersecurity attacks, but also advanced persistence threats and so on. So I would say it's in the background and it also prompts us to be more resilient. And does this attitude of Beijing, let's say, does it make your job harder? You know, whether that is how you keep the internet running, dealing with misinformation, getting vaccines into the country. Do you feel like it affects how you can do your job? As a digital minister in charge of social innovation, the hardest part of my job is to get the entire society aligned on common values. So in a sense, the PRC's regime of digital authoritarianism serves as a way to remind people that we do not want to go there. Uh, That when we're inventing new digital apparatuses, uh, we are committed to make the state transparent to the citizen and not the other way around. Uh, So in a sense, it did make my uh, life and work easier because uh, we do not have to convince each other that we do not go to the way of authoritarianism because there's a real counterpoint uh, just very much nearby. So you've mentioned resilience, and we obviously have the kind of counterfact of of China and its system. What would you say sort of beyond that are the critical factors for Taiwan uh, securing its autonomy in the coming years? 
Yeah,、uh, I think there there are two.、Uh, one is that during the pandemic, especially, we have developed this idea of Taiwan can help. Right, first it's the the mask、uh, dedication and donations to worldwide international. Humanitarian workers. We've already joined the Covax, but as a recipient, but we're also looking to、uh, join as a donor and so on. So, so all these、uh, raise Taiwan's profile from,、uh, you know, the the bubble tea being the prime association or the semiconductor company,、uh, but to a a global force of good、uh, that can do a lot of humanitarian contributions. So that's one.、Uh, the the other,、uh, I think, equally important is that、uh, on the digital realm,、um, if you type in. Digitalminister.tw.、Uh, this resolves、uh, into my website,、uh, regardless of where you are. Even if、uh, you are、uh, within the PRC regime, <laughs> this .tw goes to to where we are.、Uh, and so, in a sense,、uh, we're already autonomous just by the virtue of this domain name alone. And that's such an interesting way of thinking about it. And I and I don't mean to. Prophesize this, but even if you imagine the worst case scenario and the communist regime does somehow invade Taiwan, Taiwan will continue to exist in this digital realm, and that there are other spaces. And obviously, that is not the goal, but they can never take that away from you because of the invention of those spaces. Well.、Um This has been explored, I think, by Estonia,、uh, who have backed up the entire household registry along with other records, right, to uh, friendly uh, jurisdictions around the world in their digital embassies. And I think this is a, a, a useful metaphor、uh, to plan about things. But we're still looking to recover and build back better after earthquakes. Yeah, <laughs> sometimes there are more basic、uh, things to deal with. I would love it if you could. Tell me what your dream internet looks like, and how does the spirit of open source inform that? Yeah, my my dream internet is a internet that is universally accessible to anyone, and I mean not just people in this generation, but people in future generations. I mean not just people who use the internet to consume information. But also people who use internet to make productions, including podcasts,、uh, and so that is to say, internet is a co-creative medium、uh, and a medium that does not make discriminations regardless of your、uh, economic capabilities and so on. In Taiwan, we call this broadband as a human right. We call it digital competence in basic and lifelong educations. So we're already implementing, I guess, the dream configuration of internet.、Uh, Within our jurisdiction, so、uh, the open source movement has、uh, forked off the original free software movement,、uh, but I think、uh, they still share a very important ethos,、uh, which is people who create things should not foreclose the potentials of the descendants of the next generations in the name of. Copyright or patents or quote unquote intellectual property, and that means that, for example,、um, whatever I'm saying now, I'm publishing as a transcript under Creative Commons zero, meaning it's public domain, no rights reserved. You don't have to wait、uh, for me to to pass away for I don't know seventy five years or something、uh, in order to make those uh, uh, use of those texts. You can just start creating, co-creating using these as the materials. So I would say definitely、uh, my idea of、uh, internet as a co-creative medium is shaped by the free software and open source communities. 
that's such a fascinating tension of values or worldviews where, you know, I, I connect things like the free software movement and that kind of slightly hippie, let's say. It's very, very hippie, extremely hippie. Yeah. And, it, and, and that was original Silicon Valley in some respects. Um, how do you think that compares to to China? And, and do you travel to China, for example? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you observe the culture of technology there? By virtue of me working as digital minister TW, I do not have the clearance uh, to travel to the PRC uh, regime physically in the flesh. Uh, but it doesn't prevent me from, of course, having a lot of conferences or lectures or so on online. Now, uh, back to, to the question about the open source free software ethos. Yes, I, I believe this is fundamentally about empowerment, whether technology is there to empower the people close to the pain, to the suffering, or whether technology exists to take power away from them and centralize it either in a surveillance state or in some surveillance capitalist, right? So uh, any direction where this is decentralized or at least empowering the polycentered uh, reality that we're in uh, is compatible with our ethos. And I do believe that uh, in the Silicon Valley, people are also looking at, you know, the individual power grabs through, I don't know, tracking cookies or whatever, and and realizing that it's these technological designs that uh, shaped uh, our relationship with technology so that people get into the habit to adapt themselves to the technology, which is fundamentally a negative externality socially. And people are now asking the technologists, no, we want your technology to adapt to our true needs. Now, you've seen both sides, uh, Taiwan and Silicon Valley. Uh, you, you work there from a very young age in Silicon Valley, is my understanding. Do you feel like there are big differences in those two cultures? Or is it nothing to do with geography? And it's the question of big versus small, uh, profit motive versus creative commons. W- what do you think are the things that distinguish the two cultures? Well, there's plenty of people in the Silicon Valley building not unicorns, but zebras. Oh, what's a zebra? Tell me about that. Sure. Uh, Entities, ventures that uh, have the stripes of purpose and the stripes of profit. Uh, We may call them social entrepreneurs. And there's no shortage of social entrepreneurs in both Silicon Valley and in Taiwan. I think the, the difference here is about a sense of disruption. In Silicon Valley, uh, we still have the startups that uh, build with this mentality of taking away everything that existed before them in a certain segment, right? Uh, They say move fast and, and break things as if it's somehow a virtue. What I really mean by move fast is that I want to empower people at the company to try things out, right? Which you can do by iterating quickly, um, getting feedback, learning and going from there. Uh, and in Taiwan, uh, we, we do believe uh, in being swift and safe at the same time to uh, move fast, certainly, but repair things, fix things. And that's the main difference. Mm-hmm. You know, I think back on the time I've been involved in tech and I, I wasn't a programmer, I wasn't a startup founder, I didn't invest in anything, but I was involved in the regulatory side and I worked for the European Union for seven years and ended up as the spokesperson on tech issues. And I just 
one of the things I struggle with is the certainty that those companies just projected about everything that they did. And I, I believed it a lot more in the beginning. I was much more of a tech optimist. Uh, and then I came to see more and more of the dark sides of, of how technology could be misused and how people like to misuse it for their own personal gain. And I wonder, you know, what's been your journey in dealing with the downsides of how technology is used? I would like to focus on this word, uh, optimist. Uh, I'm also quite optimist uh, about the future of digital democracy, but I wouldn't um, call optimist the same mentality as a optimizer. And I think the kind of almost naive uh, unawareness of the negative externalities uh, are not optimism. They are the result of an optimizing mindset. Uh, in the um, computer uh, science world, uh, which I'm in, um, we have a saying, uh, premature optimization is the root of all evil. Meaning that if earlier uh, in the journey, people already choose some uh, utility function and work tirelessly to optimize that, maximize that, and discard everything else, that's what optimizing means in computer science, uh, then people um, almost always discard some very important other values worth consideration, which will be very important, even dominant in the future. But because people from very early in the journey discards those. Uh, and so I do believe that we are now looking at uh, a point where the regulators, as you mentioned, as well as the social sector, consumer protection groups, uh, as well as people who, frankly speaking, are building better alternatives, are bringing this to people's awareness that, yes, there are alternatives and the current status quo is a result of premature optimization. You're really correct. Optimization is a luxury in a way that a democracy can't afford. If you have an optimizing mentality uh, instead of a democratic inclusion mentality, then you, you can't function as a government because you're leaving behind the hardest to reach people or the most expensive to serve people. Is that the sort of sort of trade-off and challenge that you, you face in dealing with your colleagues or in, in dealing with these companies and, and how they operate in Taiwan? Definitely. So instead of seeing it as a trade-off, I see it as a trade negotiation, right? Uh, a negotiation. Trading up. <laughs> That's right. You were actually first brought into government in Taiwan when the president asked you to develop a media literacy program. Was it connected to that cooperative structure that was trying to deal with misinformation in this very flat, non-hierarchical way? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, we call it the media competence uh, program because literacy is when you read, but competence is when you fact check, when you contribute uh, to, to media. And we want our kids uh, being able to do that. Uh, but yes, the counter disinformation accord is one active part of basic education around media competence because it's the middle schoolers, for example, fact checking the presidential candidates uh, in real time as they're making their speech and their debates and so on. So it's uh, very much intertwined. And once the social sector understand the importance of this, they start making demands to, say, Facebook, saying that during elections, you have to uh, ban uh, the, you know, extra jurisdictional sponsored micro 
precision advertisements, uh, or uh, that even for domestic sources, they have to treat it like campaign donation. And I believe Taiwan is one of, if not the first jurisdiction where Facebook publish in real time the open data of all the sponsored uh, advertisement on social and political issues uh, during uh, 2019, leading up to the presidential election. And this became, of course, very good material for both investigative journalism and media competence curriculum. Wow, that that sounds very impressive indeed. I read that you're a fan of self-learning as well. Yeah, and and that's that's uh, really how I learned. Uh, after dropping out of the second year of middle high when I was fourteen years old, uh, I found this internet community. Uh, indeed, the very beginning of the World Web with the preprint servers, uh, with the comprehensive. Pearl Archive Network uh, of W3C, of IETF, uh, of these uh, like fiercely um, non-centralized organizations uh, that are organized uh, with this principle of end-to-end innovation. And I believe that uh, corresponds really well with the kind of self-learning or learning through doing, because end-to-end innovation means that nobody needs to get permission from the authority, from the author of the internet, uh, before inventing anything new. And you can go ahead and invent a a lot of new things without getting anyone's permission, but somebody else uh, around the world that want to try it out with you. I didn't realize you dropped out of the second year of high school. Can you tell me about that? Because I got the sense that you were a child prodigy, you know, advanced maths at six. You were programming, you know, when you were still in the primary school. What, what led you to, to drop out? Is it that you, you couldn't be extended or you didn't feel included? What, what, what happened? So when I was 14, uh, I participated uh, in uh, the National Science Fair, took the first place, uh, get a guarantee spot in a prestigious senior high, and so on and so forth. And then uh, I discovered, as part of working on my science fair project, uh, this community of co-creating publishing people, right? So I took some printouts of my email exchanges uh, with people uh, on ARXIV, on Archive, the preprint server, uh, to the principal, to the head of the school, saying, look, um, I can either, you know, spend eight hours a day in your school and eight hours doing research, or I can spend 16 hours doing research uh, because I'm really fascinated by this phenomena of swift trust, why people trust each other so easily and readily online and also break up very easily. So uh, I'm very interested in that. So uh, what would you say? And uh, the principal uh, read through the emails and said, okay, so what, what can I do for you? And I'm like, well, you can free me from having to attend to a school. It is compulsory education. I can't do much uh, without uh, your approval. And after thinking for a couple of minutes, she's like, okay, tomorrow you don't have to wow. go to school anymore. That, you must have been the first Taiwanese student to ever outsmart your principal in that way. Uh. That, 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 that is a real encouragement because I, I've got like uh, this whole uh, tree of possible responses and badness and things like that in my mind. And she's just, okay, tomorrow you don't have to go to school anymore. I'm like, okay, what about the, the compulsory education act? And she's like, I'll cover for you. So uh, the, the point here is wow. that it, it ingrained <laughs> in my very young mind that career public servants are actually the most innovative people in the world uh, if you can mm-hmm. um, you know, talk uh, with them and to them in a peer-to-peer fashion. 
That's that's uh, that, that's fascinating. I wondered then. I, I guess I had two other personal questions about your journey because then you went to Silicon Valley uh, a couple of years after that, and that that's a you know that's a thing that a lot of people spend half of their career working towards. So, what did that feel like to 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 just cross oceans when you were still a teenager to do that sort of work? And then at the age of twenty four, you decided to transition to female and. More recently, you've identified as non-binary, and it just feels like such an extraordinary journey. And I wanted to hear about what that experience is and, and how you bring that uh, to your work today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, rather than saying that I, I identify as a Taiwanese or identify as a um, Californian, I guess, uh, or someone mm-hmm. in the Silicon Valley, I, I would simply say that I have this experience and that experience. And similarly, instead of saying, oh, I identified as a boy or identify as a girl, I, I always say, you know, I experienced my first puberty when I was 13 and another puberty when I was like 23, 24. So, uh, and this is not just rhetorics. Uh, this uh, is I, I think something quite deep because when I say I identify with this and not that, it is quite exclusionary. It's basically telling people uh, that I'm uh, this part of humanity and not that part of humanity. But by saying I've done this puberty and I've got this experience and uh, the 10 years later, I've got another set of experience. It, it's something that's very inclusive. Uh, no matter what kind of experience you had in your puberty, probably we can talk a little bit about it because we have something in common. We have something to, to share, right? So what I'm trying to say is that building upon common experiences has always been uh, my attitude in facing this new experiences uh, so that it adds to my um, shared experience pool, but it doesn't really take me away from anything that I used to experience. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of seeing it. And it requires that people see you or the experience for everything that it is instead of reducing it down to the label or a shortcut that's convenient for them. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, a binary thinking, right? So, yeah, so as a non-binary digital minister, um, I think some commentator said, isn't that an oxymoron? Uh, can't, uh, you know, the, the digital world is, is bi- binary. <laughs> it's all zeros so, so and ones. Cannot be yeah. non-binary. <laughs> I, I'm like, no, I, I'm digital and I've got 10 digits. It's decimal, right? So it's as much as you want to add uh, to the pool of experiences. Well, I just, I mean, like, how could they say, I mean, it's a cute joke in a way, but to say that to you, like you're right in front of them. That's a, that's a, I think it's a terrible way to react to you personally. Well, I, I hug the trolls. It's my hobby. Well, that brings me to my very last question. You, you do all of this extremely serious work that impacts so many people. Um, I wondered for your hobby, how do you use the internet for fun? I hug the trolls. If you search for a troll, okay. hug, probably my blog will appear. So, <laughs> yeah, my, my, my real hobby. <laughs> Free troll hugs. That, that's right. Free hugs for trolls. So, yeah, um, indeed, uh, as you said, uh, there's a lot of people on the Internet uh, that just calls me by name uh, and uh, write mean things uh, for a hundred words uh, or more. But if I can... Um, paraphrase or interpret just five words within that 100 into something that's constructive, something that uh, by sharing their own experience, it actually results in innovation in policy or in the work that I do, then I ignore promptly the 95 
words and thanked them profusely for the five words and started a productive uh, jamming session, if you will, on social media uh, for those ideas. And so it's both pedagogical in the sense that people uh, see that um, just by sharing authentic co-creating materials, they can engage with me very quickly. But also uh, it's a good hobby because I make friends. There's a lot of uh, trolls that become pretty good uh, acquaintances and even visit me on the Social Innovation Lab. That's a really funny point, not a funny point in the laugh out loud funny, but that really resonates with me because I often find that I will clash on Twitter in particular with uh, somebody and then they, they find that when we have a little bit more of a discussion that actually there is a lot of common ground or that I'm nicer in person than I am, am online, uh, which is true for most people. So I like that. It's an act of positive resistance. You're just working with whatever threads are there to build something. It's, uh, I'm very pleased to hear it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, definitely. Well, Minister Tang, thank you so much for joining us on Global Insider. Sure. It's, it's just been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, definitely. I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, first thing I do in the morning. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Bye for now. Thank you, Audrey. Live long and prosper. Bye. Bye. Olivia Reingold produces this show. Our editor and executive producer of audio is Irene Noguchi, and Nermal Malaikal is our fact checker in chief. Thanks for crossing our T's and dotting our I's, Nermal. I'm Ryan Heath. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode of Global Insider.